And we'll begin uh, the Dhamma talk. And I, I know that uh, uh, Kathy and Carol have both very warmly welcomed you already. And I'd also like to extend a very warm welcome to each of you and all of you. Uh, some old friends, wonderful old friends here, and uh, and some new ones that will become old friends as the weeks uh, unfold. It really is a great joy for me to be here with you. And an honor, really, to spend these next three weeks together in a way that's really quite special and unique in our culture, as I'm sure you're well aware of. Uh, What a blessing and a gift it is to be here together in retreat. Usually at this point we do a five-minute sit to settle in, but we've already done that, so... You're perfectly settled in, right? (laughs) So I'd like to begin by reading a brief poem uh, by David White. He calls it Tillico Lake. In this high place, it's as simple as this. Leave everything you know behind. Step toward the cold surface and say the old prayer of love and open both arms. Those who come with empty hands will stare into the lake astonished. There in the cold light reflecting pure snow the true shape of your own face. It's not quite in season, there's no snow, but you know what he's referring to. So as we enter into retreat, each one of us alone and also um, uh, together. Uh, all of us together as a spiritual practice community. We're creating, or actually more accurately, we're co-creating a temporary village, we could say. A temporary spiritual practice village or temporary spiritual practice community. We we come together as one of my um, Burmese teachers Sada Upandita used to say, we come together as a Dhamma family. And we begin this time, this retreat time, this period of commitment to exploring and cultivating and deepening our inner life. I think it's pretty fair to say that For many, many people, there's a tremendous amount of time and energy spent, or more more accurately, expended, uh, cultivating an outer life. We've all done it. Doing things, producing things, acquiring things, going places, being somebody, becoming somebody. It's part of life. These next 21 days will be quite special and quite unique in that none of this is really important, nor will it be asked of you in the ordinary ways of the seeming requirements and expectations of the world. So whether you've engaged in this particular Uh, way of practicing previously with a somewhat open um, schedule or if this approach to practice is uh, new for you or relatively new for you 
I'm sure that each of you, each of us, all know the experience that arises for us, various permutations of the experience that arises for us. At the onset of a retreat, the sense of entering into sacred space and time, the sense of entering into a kind of sanctuary, both within our surroundings and also within ourselves and with each other. And for me, whenever I'm entering into the teaching mode or beginning a period of uh, intensive personal practice, there's always this feeling in my heart of stepping into sacred time and sacred space, both inwardly and in relationship to my surroundings. It's really a beautiful and precious footstep that each of us is taking. Up here in the Towski Valley, we're in the midst of very obvious beauty and the sacredness of all of the myriad forms of life surrounding us. The incredible diversity and natural rhythms of life happening here. The changing of the light from bright to dim to dark. And then again, back again, around and around it goes. The weather, late spring, up here in the mountains. Many changes, many, many manifestations and changes. And all of the forms of life, the community of beings that we share this place with, that you will be, if you haven't already begun to, you certainly will begin to notice and become aware of. Many birds, volumes of insects, of all shapes and colors and sizes. And other creatures, other creatures large, some large we may, you may encounter, we may see, and of course many small creatures. And the trees, thousands of them. And all of the other manifestations of plant life. And then of course the air, this mountain air itself. This natural world so close around us, so easily available to connect with. It's really a great gift that we're not separate from. It's a gift that holds us in itself. This natural world is a wonderfully fine teacher of the sacred and the perfectly natural fluidity and diversity and change that just simply is. And so it's a mirror of the truth of ourself, ourselves, our nature as nature. And in this light we might consider that nature is really no problem to itself. It's no problem to itself, in itself, if left to be itself. We can learn from this mirror of naturalness, the just isness, the just beingness, the absolutely open hearted presence, so to say, of this perfectly natural world that we reside in and are intimately and intricately part of. For one, uh, one, uh, one aspect, or for many of us, I think, one aspect of our human experience includes a natural and often easy, uh, open-hearted connection in moments of a very simple, clear Presence when we take the time to really truly arrive and to be, to really just simply be. 
So for instance, maybe today already, the late afternoon light, tomorrow morning, the early morning sunrise, the changing sky colors at the close of a day, and they're never the same on any day. Or seeing the particulars of how late spring just simply displays itself in small and larger ways up here in the mountains. And of course, along with any of this and myriad other possibilities, moments of a silent, simple, clear presence in our body, heart, and mind. Any time of the day. Any time of the night. One day some years ago, in my mother's 92nd year of life. We were out for our daily walk together, our outside walk. Uh, And at this one particular day, she stopped for a few moments, and then she stooped over and looked quite long and silently at a flower that was very, very full in its blooming, very full in its liveliness. And then after a few moments of silent contemplation with the flower, she just simply said to no one in particular, it's great to be alive. Probably each one of us, to each one of us, has come some unexpected or unsuspected or maybe even exceptional moments during a time of a very simple, clear, unfettered attention. Moments of what we could call spiritual attention. And for many of us, the natural world is often the place where this happens most easily, at least at first. As the days of this retreat unfold, you'll be learning about and strengthening your capacity to investigate, develop, purify, focus, and penetrate this simple, clear, unfettered attention. One of the wonderful things here at the Columbine Inn and at most retreat centers is that there's quite a degree of accumulated energy. All of the people that have come here to learn and to practice, all of those who have come here to do inner work, to explore the nature of things. All of the teachings that have been offered here and all the various teachers who have offered them. It's a gift of symbiotic and ever-expanding energy. And we're partaking of it and adding to it as we move through these three weeks together in retreat. And during this retreat, we have this great gift of being taken care of in a very beautiful and simple way. All of our basic needs being met. While you're here, life is pared down, simplified from your usual daily life activities, daily life demands, and seeming needs. There's really not much at all to do over these next three weeks. Sitting, walking, eating, hearing, spending some time each day with your your particular yogi job, 
sleeping, and most importantly, relaxing and diligently learning to cultivate a clear, mindful focus of attention. Cultivate and strengthen a clear, mindful focus of attention. So really, compared to the ways of the world, there's not really very much to do over the next weeks, which is a really good thing to remember. Why? Because some of you, maybe more than just a few of you, might have such a strong habit of keeping busy that you might just go on creating all sorts of things to do, which is just simply habitual. And for some, these uh, creating all sorts of things to do includes thinking about whatever, pondering about whatever, worrying about whatever. And you do this, or we do this, habitually. So just remember, when you notice those kinds of things, either physical doings, mental doings, there's nothing nothing to do, really. Look at it and go, hmm, habit again. There it goes. I do think it's fair to say that our minds are sometimes kind of like a junkyard. What do I mean by that? Well, there's a lot of rubbish that we put into and that we store in our mind. Like conversations, things we've read, books, magazines, Papers, important papers, of course, only. Myriad stuff online from the internet. All sorts of entertainments. We just pour it all in, and sometimes we store it, we keep it, often. Or we don't even know that until it pops up, it's been stored. Oh, there, there, there's that again. Some, someone once told me in a retreat that... Um, there's, she said, there's a veritable jam session going on in my mind. She was noticing that. Well, the problem with all of this is, is that it actually renders us very tired. It's exhausting. And then, of course, there's the worldly work that each of you do in different ways. Maybe making a living. Maybe if you're retired, it's not worldly work to make a living, but volunteering. And of course, much of the work that you do in whatever realm is compassionate and creative work. But if we don't take time to replenish, what happens? We give out no matter how good and no matter how fulfilling our work is. Now, the more usual ways that people are habituated to replenishing, rejuvenating, and resting is things like watching television or movies, something online, going out somewhere, and I could list it's a, I could list a lot more stuff, you know. You've got your own. But these aren't really, really, truly rejuvenating. They don't really, really, truly give us a rest. And in fact, even sleep doesn't really give the mind a true, deep rest. For a real genuine and very deep relaxation, and rejuvenation. We need to give our heart, our mind, some inner space. We need to clear out the junkyard 
let go of the junkyard. Quiet the inner noise. And one way to do this uh, and to really facilitate the process uh, is to keep the mind, to keep the attention purely in the moment in a very simple way. Nothing complicated. This is really healing. And it is the best rest for the heart and the mind. The mind and body is able to relax, to brighten up and be alert, and to be able to focus in a non-complicated way. Even with just a few moments of this, one feels refreshed. We feel clear, clearer. We feel more wakeful. And so it's helpful and skillful, actually, to begin our retreat learning and practicing towards keeping the mind focused in the moment. And again, as I say, in a very simple way, with the attention purely and simply on the sensations of the in-breath and the out-breath, maybe in the area of the nostrils, maybe in the belly, maybe whole body breathing. Whatever way you are used to and have practiced uh, with breath as a focus of attention, that's a good way to start. Very simple. And it's not uh, just a beginner's practice. It's a practice for the whole of our lifetime. And it's deep. And it's skillful. And it's beneficial. It's not always so easy, as I'm sure each of you knows. But it's a really good approach to training the mind to be and to stay in the moment. So, in light of this, one of the things we're practicing here, and I'm going to talk about it in a particular way, is renunciation. Meaning, in this case, uh, letting go of busyness, letting go of the usual distractions that you are habituated to engaging in to try to relax out of all of the busyness. One of those might be meditation, so this is a group, a, a lucky group that way. <laughs> it isn't always that, that way with groups in a meditation practice or in a retreat practice. So this is really a gift, one of the gifts of renunciation. Simplifying our life and just simply being. Just simply being not becoming anything, not becoming a somebody, as uh, one uh, teacher used to say, not filling up the mind with more stuff. There's plenty in there already. But rather just simply being and directly connecting with your experience. Your experience of, for instance, the simple sensations in the body. The simple sensations of an in-breath and an out-breath. Just as it is in any given moment. And so we begin together in this sanctuary. This place of safety and protection this place that really holds and engenders a very deep respect and acceptance. What a valuable gift you've given yourself and that you give to each other simply by being here and by practicing together with this extended Dhamma family.
I think for just about all of us, there are various mental and physical states that come up at the onset of a retreat. So I'll list a few, and I'm sure you'll recognize some of these in your own uh, body, mind, and heart. Excitement, maybe some nervousness, a little anxiety, maybe a little worry, maybe delight, certainly often various degrees of expectation, degrees and directions of expectation, maybe some sense of relief. Oh, at last I'm in retreat again. Oh, what a relief. So lots of energy moving through the body, the mind, and the heart. Even for people who have sat many, many retreats. Why? Because every single retreat is unpredictable in the unique ways that it will unfold. It's just like life. (laughs) Unpredictable. It's part of life. Unpredictable. And for me, uh, with teaching, or beginning a time of a personal uh, retreat time, personal retreat practice, many of these same uh, flavors of energy move through my heart and my mind and my body. It's just how it is. It's our human nature. It's how it works as we enter into something new. And certainly how very fortunate it is that we're embodied as we are in this human form. This, what's classically called, precious human existence making it possible to practice, making it possible to be able to look within and to cultivate a pure, concentrated, penetrative, and balanced mind and heart that's rooted in kindness, compassion, and developing and deepening wisdom. The fact is that we're a minority, quite a minority, on this earth and of course in the universe and beyond so think about it for a moment there are more than 11 million species living on just this planet consider one insects for instance just insects a friend here in Taos Uh, who owns and runs a plant nursery, uh, told me that there are 200 million bugs, as she put it, per human on the planet. Wow. Are we here? I mean, we're hardly like we're minuscule. 200 million bugs for each of us. More than that. (laughs) How fortunate it actually is that we're embodied as we are. This human heart and mind and body are really the most conducive towards developing the purity of a focused mind that's rooted in kindness, compassion, joy, equanimity, and the great gift of wisdom because of the particular mixture that each one of us has of both pleasure and pain. You may not agree, but actually, there's just enough of each for each of us. I mean, sometimes there's a little more of one, sometimes a a little more of the other, at times some huge, many handfuls of one, and seemingly not much, if any, of the other. But the truth is that it changes back and forth and back and forth, certainly within a lifetime, within a week, daily, and even within moments when we're paying 
a good attention to what's going on. So really this human realm offers the best conditions that we could ask for. (laughs) I just had a memory when my mother was 91, 2. She died at 92, almost 93. We'd be driving down the road here in the Taos area. She lived with me at the end of her life. And she'd look out the window. I mean, she didn't have such a hard life, but she also didn't have such an easy life in some ways. She'd look out the window and she'd see the cows. She'd always say hello. Hi, cows. Hi, horsies. And then she'd say, you know, I want to be a cow in my next life. All I'll have to do is just chew the grass. It sounded so easy and simple for her. And I can understand that. But really, it's the human realm that offers us <laughs> our best opportunities and possibilities, even though sometimes we might want to be a cow. It said that if all the world were water and a wooden ring about one foot in diameter was thrown upon the water and just blown around by the winds. It said that a blind turtle surfacing once every hundred years would put its neck through the wooden ring, this wooden ring, more easily than one can obtain a precious human existence. We're a pretty rare species within the enormous breadth of life forms on this planet. The ancient texts tell us that those who have a precious human existence with all of the conditions and opportunities and blessings in place to meet the Dhamma and to practice the Dhamma, to practice the purification of the mind and the heart, to practice the way of truth and wisdom that these beings are as rare as daytime stars. Now, stars are always out. We just don't see them in the daytime. So here we are, with all of the conditions and all of the blessings in place and a wonderful three-week opportunity ahead of us. A time of cultivation, a time of discovery, a time of exploration, purification, surprise, and understanding. All of it available. Which some of the time might not, might not be so easy. And at times may even be quite challenging. But all of the while, your time here very much includes the real potential of bringing Fourth, experiences of deep relaxation, calm, tranquility, joy, happiness, equanimity, illumination, and wisdom, understanding. As we enter into this period of sustained spiritual practice, there are a few specific supports Uh, that are very readily available for all of us here. So I'd like to take just a brief look now at uh, at these with with you. And our first support is the wonderful gift of silence. As I say that, as the truck roars by. (laughs) This silence, this gift of silence, that very gently holds us in itself. Silence is quite amazing in certain ways, actually. It doesn't expect anything. It doesn't judge. Silence is infinitely patient, boundlessly spacious, open, allowing, and accepting. This container of silence that has no boundaries, 
and that everything comes out of and everything returns to. And, of course, within the silence, as we are hearing as I speak and as the truck roars by, there are sounds, all kinds of sounds that arise and pass. So certainly, as you are now, you'll hear my voice at times, possibly, occasionally, other voices. You might hear sighs, maybe cries, laughs, Certainly, probably coughs, sneezes, throat clearings, moving bodies, maybe the occasional, not maybe for sure, the occasional roar of engines, the sound of bells, certainly the sound of birds, dogs, other creatures, the sounds of weather, wind, Maybe rain, we hope. (laughs) No snow. All kinds of sounds arising and passing in the midst of silence. Now sometimes, and I think sometimes, not always, we interpret sound as noise. And I think it's quite important to note that this is an interpretation. And note it and notice it. Is this sound noise? Any particular sound noise? And what happens if it's interpreted as noise? Are you relaxed? Is your heart open to simply hearing and receiving the sound? Or is there some degree of contraction, some form of aversion, resistance, irritation, the irritation of being disturbed? Now, if it's just a sound being heard, our relationship to it is basically one of relaxed acceptance. Just simply and directly hearing which very well may be accompanied with a simple, pleasant, unpleasant, or maybe neutral feeling tone. But of course we're not always in this relationship to sound. So with an open heart, an open mind, just mindfully notice your response or your reaction to sound and notice it without judgment and notice it in the midst of silence. That's a possibility. Sometimes within the silence of a retreat setting, it feels as though all of the windows of the world, all of the windows of the universe, all the windows of life itself, we could say, have been thrown wide open within us. And when this is our experience, there can be this sense of freshness and and beauty, an an inner um, sense of open-hearted receptivity and stillness, a sense of a fresh clarity having been let in. Many people find this support of silence and retreat to be one of the most precious aspects of retreat life. Because, as I've already mentioned, it holds everything. But it doesn't hold on to anything. Everything just simply and naturally comes and goes in this spacious, patient acceptance of silence. And again, the key here, as I've already mentioned, is that you don't have to be anybody. You really 
don't have to be anybody special. You don't have to present yourself. And I mean that even when you come for your practice meetings with me. Nobody special, not presenting yourself. You don't have to be a somebody or become a somebody. You just simply be. That's a possibility. And it's a great relief, actually, to just simply be. Silence is where we learn to listen, where we learn to sense, see, and understand the true nature of all things. John Muir, the naturalist and environmentalist, said this, I only went out for a walk and finally concluded to stay out till sundown. For going out, I found, was really going in. One seeks solitude to know relatedness. Then the unknown, the unarticulated, the unpredictable, the uncontrollable appear as protectors of truth, protectors of the present. So I like to take a bit of time at the beginning of a retreat to explore uh, silence because it's so much more than just not talking. And so now we'll just spend uh, a little bit of time exploring the other two supports that are available for all of us while we're here in retreat. And the first being taking refuge. The Buddha's teachings can be thought of as a kind of building with its own distinct foundations and various levels, stairs, we could say, and a roof. And like any other building, the teachings, the teaching also has a door. And in order to enter into this door, we to enter into the building, we have to enter through the door. I mean, I suppose you could try through the window, but the door is the best way to get in. The door of the entrance to the teachings of the Buddha is going for refuge to the three jewels. From ancient times into the, until the present, Going for refuge has really functioned as the entryway into the teachings of the Buddha. It gives us admission, we could say, uh, to the rest of the teachings from its lowermost story all the way up to the top. All of us who embrace the teachings of the Buddha do so by passing through this door of taking refuge. And those of us that are already committed regularly reaffirm our conviction by continuing to make this threefold commitment. I go to refuge for the Buddha. I go for refuge to the Dhamma. I go for refuge to the Sangha. And I've actually heard from some people uh, who think this step is somewhat um, not that important and kind of commonplace, especially compared to the very uh, lofty teachings and practices and various achievements uh, that lie beyond. People have said that. I really feel that the importance for all of us on this path is that it's this act of taking refuge that imparts the direction and the forward momentum to the entire practice of the Buddha's path, all the different practices. 
Bhikkhu Bodhi said that from a Buddhist perspective, our human situation is similar to that of an iceberg, he said. A small fraction of its mass appears above the surface. The vast substratum remains below, hidden out of view, said Bhikkhu Bodhi. Concealed from ourselves, and even uh, often in very subtle ways, our desires condition our perceptions and often twist them uh, in certain ways to fit into the mold that they want and that they're habituated to. Habits are very strong. So consequently, and this happens for all of us, consequently our mind works by way of selection and exclusion. And often we mostly take note and notice those things that are agreeable to us our particular habits. And we may either blot out or even distort those things that are appearing uh, that seem to threaten our habitual preconceptions and our habitual ideas of things. So from this perspective, we begin to understand more comprehensively and more clearly that our ordinary sense of security is actually a false security. And it's sustained by a lack of awareness of the mind's capacity for subterfuge. And then we also begin to understand more deeply that the real way to safety and the real way to security lies through clear, mindful insight, not through wishful or hopeful thinking. So we begin to practice sharpening and widening our inner vision, we could say, reaching beyond the contraction of fear and our beyond our habituated preconceptions, perceptions, and imaginations, all of which have, we could say, lulled us into a very comfortable complacency via turning away or running after various distractions. Now I think it's really important that in our practice we're not looking for trouble. That's not what we're practicing for. We're not looking for trouble through our practice. I think there's some misunderstanding with some people about that. But rather we're we're open and really open and truly interested in the truth of how it really is and how it really works. This is the truth, the true what truly, truly leads us in the direction of ease and in the direction of happiness. That's what we're practicing for. We're not looking for trouble. (laughs) And this calls for courage and it calls for determination. And so we take refuge in the three jewels. We take refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, time and time again, all along the way, 
all along the years of our practice. One of my favorite ways to bring light to taking refuge is to take a look at some of the wonderful classical similes or metaphors that are given in the text for each of the three jewels. So I'd like to share just four of my favorite similes with you this evening. It's a little bit different way of talking about taking refuge than is often done in retreat. The first simile compares the Buddha to the sun. I have to put my glasses on because I have to read this to some degree. The first simile compares the Buddha to the sun, for his appearance in the world is like the sun rising over the horizon. His teachings of the true Dhamma, his teaching of the true Dhamma is like the net of the sun's rays spreading over the earth, dispelling the darkness and the cold of the night, giving warmth and light to all beings. The Sangha, the third refuge, is like the beings for whom the darkness of night has been dispelled, who go about their affairs enjoying the warmth and the radiance of the sun. The second simile compares the Buddha to the full moon, the jewel of the nighttime sky. His teaching of the Dhamma is like the moon shedding its beams of light over the world, cooling off the heat of the day. The Sangha is like the persons who go out in the night to see and enjoy the refreshing splendor of moonlight. And the third simile, the Buddha is likened to a great rain cloud spreading out across the countryside at a time when the land has been parched with a long summer's heat. The teaching of the true Dhamma is like the downpour of the rain which inundates the land, giving water to plants and vegetation. The Sangha is like the plants, the trees, shrubs, bushes, and grass, which thrive and flourish when nourished by the rain pouring down from the cloud. And the last simile that I like to share compares the Buddha to a lotus flower, the paragon of beauty and purity. Just as a lotus grows up in the muddy lake but rises above the water and stands in full splendor, unsoiled by the mud, so the Buddha, having grown up in the world, overcomes the world and abides in its midst, untainted by its impurities. The Buddha's teaching of the true Dhamma is like the sweet, perfumed fragrance emitted by the lotus flower, giving delight to all. And the Sangha is like the host of bees who collect around the lotus, gather up the pollen, and fly off to their hives to transform it into honey. I'm so uh, moved by this. It's all symbols from nature, of the way of life. Very beautiful to me. And another beautiful and, I think, quite important aspect of taking refuge in the Sangha, particularly, is that we are all taking refuge in each other. Right here and right now. And so very necessary it is on this amazing and very powerful and sometimes difficult journey. We need Sangha. We need the support and the inspiration and the strength of community, of this Dhamma family, to engage in and continue along the journey. So taking refuge, this great gift of support as we practice together through this retreat, the beautiful gift of Refuge in the Three Jewels, the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. The next support for us as we move into retreat mode is the practice of sila. 
Sila being a Pali word that translates as virtue, meaning living ethically in relationship to all forms of life, living with a very deep moral sensitivity and respect towards and with all forms of life, including oneself. And the Buddha, as you know, offered these particular teachings and practices as precepts or guidelines, meaning that they're not rigid rules laid upon us from the outside, but rather they're really the ground uh, of our life as our practice. Here in retreat, and of course uh, outside of this retreat setting. The overall underlying principle of each and all of the precepts or guidelines is non-harming. With the intention and the practice being to connect to all forms of life, again with deep respect, and with a caring heart, honoring life in all of its forms, and then to act from this place of care and respect and honor. Any one of these guidelines might light up as a point of practice for us in any moment during this retreat. And when this shows up for us, in relationship to something maybe we've done or something we've said or something that we've thought, it offers us an opportunity in that moment to extend our practice of focused attention and mindfulness into this particular moment of experience. I'd like to share a teaching that comes from the Dhammapada from the Buddha, called harmlessness. All beings tremble before violence. All fear death. All love life. See yourself in others. Then whom can you hurt? What harm can you do? One who seeks happiness by hurting those who seek happiness will never find happiness. For your sister, your brother, is like you and wants to be at ease. Never harm her, never harm him. And then in this life and when you leave this life, you will find happiness. There's really a great beauty and ease that resides in the heart and the mind and the body with living ethically. During the years that I was practicing with the Venerable Sayadaw Upandita, one of my Burmese teachers who's no longer alive, every time I went into the house that he was staying in uh, for my practice meetings with him, I was gently but very profoundly struck by an energy of freshness, lightness, beauty, and ease that pervaded that space, that house, the space, the room that he was in, and his persona. The fruits of a long life that was deeply imbued with sila. As our practice deepens and matures, we come to understand what brings happiness, contentment, and ease on deepening levels, and what brings suffering, and what brings confusion, what brings dis-ease. This is the ground of what allows our practice of Mindfulness, concentration, metta, compassion, wisdom to take hold, 
to evolve and to blossom. There's a particular uh, rendition of Refuges and Precepts that was written by a woman named Stephanie Kaza, who used to be the gardener at the Green Gulch Zen Farm, which is a uh, Zen retreat center. She no longer lives there, but uh, she's still a gardener, though, I understand. And this is what she wrote. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow not to kill. Knowing how, de- how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not take what has not been given. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not engage in abusive relationships. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not speak falsely or deceptively. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not harm self or others through poisonous thought or substance. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not dwell on past errors. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not speak of self separate from others. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not possess anything or form of life selfishly. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not harbor ill will toward any plant, animal, or human being. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not abuse the great truth of the three treasures, the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. In this retreat, we'll uh, chant the Refuges and Precepts together uh, on Dhamma Talk evenings, uh, just prior to the Dhamma Talk. And there won't be a, a Dhamma Talk offered every single evening. And we will take, we'll all take the five precepts. And I'm also offering uh, the eight precepts for anyone who's interested in taking those. And Anyone, any one of you are very welcome to try practicing uh, with eight precepts for any amount of time uh, during this retreat. So if you're, you've never done it and you're wanting to try, feel free. You do need to leave a note for the cook if you're going to practice with eight precepts that you won't be eating the evening meal. And if you go off the eight precepts, you need to leave another note for the cook uh, telling her that you're now going to be participating in the evening meal. So all of these wonderful supports. They're all here for us throughout these three weeks. The simplicity of daily life here in retreat the ambiance and the availability of the natural world surrounding us here, the silence, refuge in the three jewels, the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, and the five or the eight precepts or guidelines for living our life here in retreat. So I'd like to close the talk with a short uh, poem from the author Anais Nin. And then the day came when the risk to remain tight in a bud was more painful than the risk it took to blossom. So, we didn't take the We didn't chant the um, guidelines or the precepts together before this evening's talk, so we're going to do it at the end right now. And we'll all do the five precepts. Did you all get... Oh, you didn't. 
maybe uh, Carol will get the sheets for those of you that need need them. We have enough for everybody. And uh, while she's getting those, uh, is there anybody that would like to um, take the eight precepts this retreat? Tomorrow. Tomorrow. You already had supper. But you can take them tonight. Because we do have a Dharma talk tomorrow. That's true. So I am going to offer them this evening. Oh, you haven't eaten dinner yet. Okay. Anyways, there's a few of you this time that would like to do the eight precepts. That's great. It's great if you're doing five. Just as great. (laughs) Anybody else need sheets? Okay. So we'll chant them in Pali. And um, I don't don't do it call and response, as some teachers do. Um, We'll do them together. Uh, And if you're not that familiar with them, we're not going to do them really fast. Those that do know them, chant with vigor, so you can support those that uh, will be learning. And, you know, after a time or two, they'll... And you have the sheets right in front of you so you can read them. 